find ourselves in the battlefield again in Ephesians chapter 6. Please join me in that portion of God's Holy Scripture as we look once more at another piece of the armor. Today we're looking at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, or the sword of God. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul has been, for three chapters, dealing with the agenda of the Christian life. The first three chapters deal with the credenda, what we are to believe. We come then to the practice of the Christian life, and he concludes with this magnificent call to stand as warriors for the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your scripture. Thank you for the entrance of your word, which brings light to our dark hearts and minds. Lord, we are a lost people without Scripture truth. And we pray, Lord, that your light would shine in each of our hearts and lives, that you would lead us in the path that leads to to everlasting life, a life which we already partake of through the finished work of our Redeemer, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you call us uh, to stand in this good fight of faith. We thank you, Lord, for our Savior, who is the captain of that fight and who leads and directs us that even as we deal with these principalities and powers, they have been placed beneath the feet of our Savior. Help us, Lord, humbly to bow before you and to hear your word today, uh, to uh, delight in it, to receive it uh, as your word to us. We pray, Lord, for the strengthening of each of your people, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. Help us to encourage and build one another up in our holy faith. And may your spirit now have his way in each of our hearts and minds. We thank you for this passage. May it shine upon us now, and may we be edified through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, when we come to this second half of the book of Ephesians and the spiritual battle in chapter 6 in particular, along with the book of Colossians, this letter deals with what we call the cosmic Christ. Christ who is the Lord of all, the Savior who has come to redeem sinners one by one, yes, 
but ultimately to redeem the entire cosmos. He is the Lord over all the principalities as we are greeted in the opening chapter of this magnificent letter. He is king over all the principalities. He is the sum of everything. All things are are traveling, as it were, to Jesus as the telos, as the omega, uh, which he is to bring in. He has come to rescue, to borrow the metaphor from John Bunyan, he has come to rescue the fallen city of Mansoul. He has come with the salvation of the children of God, that the whole earth might be freed from its bondage to the curse. And I say this to begin our message because it is the easiest thing for us to forget, as we who are in the nitty-gritty of life in chapters 4 through 6, as we are down in the weeds, to forget that. As we're putting on these pieces of armor, as we're doing battle with the wicked one and his schemes, we can kind of get very, we're down on, as it were, the worm's eye view instead of the bird's eye view. And I thought it would be helpful for us to be reminded who is king of all. The armor in particular can fix our focus very much just on ourselves. And when we do that, there's a temptation to take them off of Christ. And I pray that that will not happen. This warfare of Ephesians chapter 6 is the most unique and most important that we can possibly engage in. This is not at all controversial, I hope, among Christians. Paul there chained in a prison to a soldier looking at the armor that he's wearing begins to be led by the Holy Spirit to lay down these principles for us. Um, These are carnal illustrations to make a spiritual point. That's the uniqueness of the Christian battle. It is not a battle with flesh and blood. It is rather a battle that is of a spiritual sort. And our warfare is not according to the flesh, but it is according to God. But we have added here and said something that is more debatable, that this is a spiritual warfare shouldn't be. But we've said something that is a bit controversial. That is, that putting on this spiritual armor is what it means to stand, is what it means to attain the victory over the wicked one in our life. In other words, being belted sincerely with truth around our waist, clad in this breastplate of a new life of righteousness, walking in gospel boots of peace, protected by a shield of faith, wearing the helmet of, 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 of this eschatological hope. Um, what more do you really need? Clad in such armor. The fiery arrows of the wicked one cannot pierce you. They bounce off or they are extinguished as soon as they touch your protection. And heaven is surely your home. But this view perhaps is stretched when it comes to the piece of the armor that is before us today, the sword that God places in each and every one of your hands. And that sword is the word of God. Surely just holding the sword will not win the day, will it? Just having a beautiful sword, some great Excalibur, does not guarantee your victory. The sword is given to be used. It must be taken out of its sheath. It must be wielded aright. And without this last weapon, what use would it be for you to enter into the field of battle? Would you thrash your your enemy with the belt of sincerity? Will you do fight, uh, fight your enemy in that way or perhaps kick him 
with your gospel shoe of peace? Or maybe headbutt him with your helmet of salvation? The sword, recognize, is the only offensive weapon in this catalog. This is the peace that you must have. You dare not enter the fight without it. Swords can serve defensively, no question. In fact, just having a sword can be a deterrent. You just recognize that man has a sword over there. That man has a gun. That is a deterrent to evil, you see. But at the same time, a merely defensive Christianity is woefully incomplete. To go without a sword in the offense, we're missing a major piece. William Gurnall, who wrote this massive treatise on this passage, said, A pilot without his map, a scholar or student without his book, and a soldier without his sword are alike ridiculous. A Christian without his Bible, a Christian without her scriptures, is a silly picture. So we have this sword, this Excalibur, put in our hand, placed there by God himself. This sword is what Satan fears the most. Of all the pieces, when he sees that sword, that's what makes him tremble. Recall how Jesus needed only to quote the word to defeat the wicked one. Paul tells us then to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What then is the Christian without the Bible? So let us behold for a moment here as we get started what this sword is. It's the sword of the Spirit. Paul is is eager to put that in there. He doesn't just say, you have the sword, which is the word of God, but he highlights this is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit works in this very thing. What can go to the heart? What can go to the depths of your needs? Like the living and active and sharpened word of God. The sword of the Spirit is mighty, where the flesh is weak. The Spirit in and by the word is life, where the letter, the mere letter of it, kills and brings death. The hearts of man are darkness, deception, and destructive. But the word is God's thoughts. The word is God's spiritual heart opened. And they are the ways of life. They are the ways of light. They are the ways that bring us into the love of God. This phrase, sword of the Spirit, is instructive. Do you recognize that your Bibles, the Bible alone, the Word of God, is the product of the Holy Spirit? There's not a single word, not a single letter in the Scriptures that have not come from Him. It's the Spirit who has given you that book. All Scripture, says Paul in 2 Timothy 3, is God-breathed. Uh, Theopneustos, they are brought forth from God's very lips, from his own breath. Uh, Peter writes in the second letter, holy men of old spoke, not according to their own ideas, not according to their own inspiration, but as the Holy Spirit bore them along, they spoke, they wrote, they've given us this book. So the truth from God ultimately can only be revealed by God. These things cannot be discovered by man unaided. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the thoughts of God no one knows except for the Spirit of God who dwells in him. And further, the Spirit searches all things of God, even the depths of God. 
So brethren, I want you to think about your Bibles this morning. God, the Holy Spirit, brought forth from the infallible and unfathomable depths divine, from God himself, the revealed truth and will of the Lord. That is verbal communication of the mind and desire of the depths of God himself are communicated to us through the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. It is the word from God and not the word from man, not discoverable by man, but given as it were from on high. Do you not know that God's word is an extension of himself? There is no knowing of God himself apart from knowing God's word. And boy, isn't that the problem in our day and age, isn't it? There are all kinds of people, spiritual people. I know God. This is what I think about the Lord. Well, are you tying it to God's own word where he tells us who he is, what he's like, how we are to understand him? We're ignorant of this book, and yet our lips are filled with God speak. We must be directed back to the depths of God revealed to us in Scripture. That's the picture that is before us. There's no knowing of God, truly, savingly, apart from knowing God's word. And then this sword word is to be held by us in a spiritual, a Holy Spirit manner. The same second chapter in 1 Corinthians, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot accept them. There needs to be a change in, in human beings to be able to connect with this word that has come to us by the Holy Spirit from the depths of our Father's heart. The spiritual man is brought to lay hold of this word. Or better, this sword is not so much held by us as much as we are held by this sword. That's a key phrase in this message. This sword holds us. Um, imagine a sword that could fight its own battles, that could do all of its, its maneuvers on its own. Imagine such a weapon that always made its own perfect and pointed strokes in the war. And all you had to do was to hold on and to go for a ride. See, understand, this is where the metaphor of the sword for the word of God, the, the word of the spirit, breaks down. Because a sword, a physical sword, is what? It's passive. It has no personality. It has no life in it. This piece of steel is, is, is passive. But the word of God is anything but passive. This is active. This is, a, this is engaging. It is living. It is sovereign. You and I, are, we cannot ultimately manipulate the word of God. We don't place the word of God beneath us so as to manhandle it and to be gripped however we please, even though there are many teachers who seek to do that very thing. They twist the scripture and they do it to their own destruction. Whereas if we're following the scripture, the scripture grips us and we are enabled by the grace of God to be captivated by that living word. We are held by this word. We are gripped by this word. We are made captives and controlled by the word of God. The word is spiritually, that is, by the Holy Spirit, wielded in the battles of life. 
I find so many times Christians struggling in their life, and I say, are you in the Bible? Yeah, yeah, I'm reading the Bible. Are you connecting with the Bible? Is the Bible really getting into you? When that's not happening, then it's, it's not engaging you like it should. That's what helps us when we're engaged with the Spirit of Christ that leads and directs us to walk more deeply in the things of the Scripture. So I want to say that this actually does reflect our somewhat controversial view that having the sword is all that is needed. If you have that sword and the Spirit is working in your heart, God takes it from there. He does not leave us passive, but engages us to walk in and by the Word. But the emphasis is upon His work in us, of what His grace has begun and will continue to do until the day of Christ. The emphasis is upon the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God and not upon you, the Christian, because we are weak in ourselves. Let me add here the spiritual effects of the sword. What sword gives life? What sword saves by its sharp point? What sword saves and redeems by its double-edged blades? No doubt this sword does slice and slays men in their sins. It humbles them. It breaks them. The word of God lays man low and cuts them to the quick. We, I hope, heard that in the, in the reading of the Ten Commandments. Who of us have kept the Ten Commandments? So to use another metaphor about the Bible, the word is like a hammer. The word does crush. The word does bring a blow to us. Are our hearts humbled under that word? Uh, But the aim of that is not just to leave us in a broken state, but so as to raise us up, to make us whole through what Christ has done, and to give us life everlasting. Peter, who saw firsthand the might of the Spirit of Christ on the day of Pentecost, wrote in his first letter, But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. And when it was preached to you, this is the word by which you have been born again. There's this intricate connection between this word and our life and our God. You can't separate those three things. The Bible's spiritual in its origin, spiritual in its use, and spiritual in its effects. Only people of the word can say that they've been born of the Spirit as opposed to being born of the flesh. So, dear ones, what should your response be to these things? Our attitude to the precious Word of God should be one of humble and deep admiration and love for the Bible because there is nothing like this book. But more, we add that our attitude should be one of trust in this book, confidence in the Scriptures, It is a more sure word than anything else that you can possibly see or have in creation. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So think of that. There's the strongest connection between this word and all the powers of God. The same voice that speaks to us here in a gentle whisper of the scriptures is the same voice that commanded the cosmos to come into being. We are hearing the voice of our creator as we read the scriptures. It is the the same voice that talks to us through Paul and Peter and John who humbly comes and speaks face to face in the Bible. The Bible is so accessible 
That's the same voice that right now upholds and keeps and guides the entire universe, every single star in it, all the heights and depths held together by the word of his power speaks to us here. And the same voice that promises eternal life to those who believe, as well as warns and assures those of total and eternal suffering away from the presence of the Lord if they remain in unbelief, will one day thunder forth with the trump of God and bring this present age to an end, will bring judgment upon all of his enemies and bring us into a new heavens and a new earth who know Christ as our shepherd. So this speaks of the enduring nature of this sword word. And we need to feel that. A fellow by the name of Mason said, All arguments against the word of God are fallacious. All conceits against the word are delusions. All derision, mocking of the word is folly. All opposition against the word is madness, lunacy. Hammer away, you hostile hands. Your hammers break, God's anvil stands. That's our attitude. And boy, there couldn't be a worse way of harming the church than what took place some 100 and 150 years ago when liberalism came in and said, this is just man's word. This isn't God's word. And attacked the Bible and just decimated so many churches in our nation and throughout the world. German higher criticism has done so much evil in the world. This book, the Bible, demands to be central in your life. It should be thoroughly and well-gripped by the hand of your soul. You should prize nothing so much as the Word of God speaking to you. It's not some toy. It's not some momentary pastime to be played with. Well, dear ones, having seen then the Bible is the Word of God and is of the Spirit, why does Paul liken it to a sword then? Well, no doubt for its sharpness, in part. It cuts through so much of the nonsense, the deceit, the falsehoods of a world of fallen men who are beneath the wicked one, who are under the God of this age, this fallen angel. We need this word as a sharp light to, to put upon the darkness. When we're in the darkness, we're lost and we're making things up. But there is no carnal sharpness here, is there? Not at all. As we said in the beginning, this is a unique fight and this is a unique we weapon. This sword does indeed conquer, but in a different fashion than the swords of steel and of men. This sword conquered the Roman Empire. This sword conquered on the floor of the Colosseum in Rome. It did so not by shutting the mouths of the lions, as Daniel enjoyed in chapter 6, but triumphing over death itself. That's how that sword functioned. Men like the church father Polycarp lifted high the blade, and he said, Go ahead, release the beasts. Let the lions, don't stop the lions from crushing my body. They will grind my bones into wheat, and God will make me his bread forever. It's this sword that Luther lifted up when he stood upon the pavement of the Diet of Worms and challenged the entire world of his day, both the Pope and the Prince and all of their false doctrines, and said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me 
Amen. And what was he referring to? I stand upon the word of God and the reason that flows from that scripture. He would later say that all that he did in effecting a great reformation, a Protestant reformation, was simply to preach the word. And look at what that sword did for Europe and for England and beyond. It was this sword that was unsheathed in the great awakening of the 17 and 1800s of our nation, a nation that was formed under God, that has brought such blessing in every direction. There is no other sword to be used by the Christian or by the church than this sword. What David said of Goliath's sword applies here. There is none like it. Give it to me. Give it to me. That's the attitude we should have. But sadly, brethren, there are those who go forth against the evil one with lesser swords and lesser weapons. I see a whole army of brightly robed and mitered priests with a wealth that is staggering, taking the field with swords made of wood, made of men's traditions. They would beat down the enemy with weapons hewn from the forests of fleshly philosophy. Here's another legion that takes the battlefield, far more casually dressed. There are those who bear the name of Christ, but the only weapon that they have is their own emotion, their own experiences, their experientialists. They march to the voice of their own feelings, which they say, this is the spirit moving in my life, when they're ignoring what Scripture says. What a plastic sword is this, and flimsy, which cannot cut through the thick lines of the enemy. Let the armies of dead orthodoxy and warm but lifeless mysticism come to the word, Here's the truth. Here's real life to be found in in the depths of this well. Draw forth from the well of the word the salvation that you need. How could we even begin to compare man-made weapons with the sword that is the Bible? What would we imagine to do without this sword? Will we really trust our precious and eternal soul to anything other than the foundation That is the word of God. You dare not do that. You must not trust in anything less than the infallible, the inerrant, the authoritative word of God. How then do we take this this precious eternal word to our trust? How do we take this sword as good soldiers of Jesus Christ? Well, let me leave you with three things here as we highlight and begin to close. First of all, study your Bible. Are you students of the word? Are you diligently in the Bible and the Bible in you? The Bible talks to us so as to be understood. The great Anglican minister Charles Simeon, a man greatly used of the Lord in the 19th century, especially to send forth missionaries, he gives us four particular qualities regarding the sharpness of knowing the word of God. Number one, especially keep an eye on its clear directives as opposed to falling into some kind of mystical haziness in our studies of the word. It's clear directives. It's powerful motives. We're to draw from the scriptures, not just the precepts, what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, but also the motivation behind these things, as opposed to something which is just merely appended to our life. We don't take the Bible and just say, I'm going to live my life and add the scripture to it. The Bible is your very life, said the Lord to his people in Deuteronomy. This word that I give to you, it is your life. Be motivated. Thirdly, take its encouragements. You need encouragement as you live out the word, 
as opposed to looking at the Bible as just some kind of a rigid moral code to be followed. You are to embrace this through the love and grace and kindness of your Savior. And then also take careful note of the instructive examples. The Bible is filled with examples. God has deemed it wise and good to put his precepts and his promises not only in stone and in ink, but in flesh and in clothes. He has not even withheld his only begotten son from this in giving him as he has, as a model for our life, as well as the foundation and salvation for our souls. What did the son do when he came and did battle? Again, let's listen to what Simeon says. The word of God is the sword of the spirit by which the spiritual foe is cloven down. The captain of salvation set the example. And once and again and a third time did he repel the assault of the prince of darkness by three brief and simple citations from scripture. Diplomacy and argument, truce and armistice are of no avail with this enemy. The keen, bright sword of the spirit must be unsheathed and lifted. And that's what Jesus did in the wilderness against Satan. Study the Bible with your minds. You know, are you humble? What is the measure of your humility? Your humility, I believe, is best demonstrated by being teachable. I am learning the word of God and holding to the scripture. Then secondly, believe the Bible with your heart. Learn it with your mind. Believe it with your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The aim of Scripture is for you not only to know or understand what the Bible says, but to really believe it, to rely on it, to rest in it as your very foundation and confidence. One of my favorite quotes from Samuel Rutherford is, believe God's word and will rather than your own thoughts and feelings. I'm going to tell you right now, you think too much of your own thoughts. You think too much of your own feelings. These things are your little Bible, your rival Bible within, it, within you. And scripture tells us that we are not to rely upon that, but to rely upon God's word, God's will, rather than our own thoughts, our own feelings. We are going to read tonight from Luke 24. Did not our hearts glow? Were they not warmed, asked the two disciples, as Christ was speaking to us in the way? Are you warmed by the word? Are you as sponges? Drinking up the scripture. Are you thrilled by it? Is it your life? Man, there's nothing like the Bible. I remember being a new Christian, how much I love scripture. Just amazed by the Bible. The Bible is an amazing book. And it's almost like I, I, I understand what J.C. Ryle meant when he said, I'm just, I'm just totally surprised by it. It's just so filled with goodness, promises, encouragements. It's such a rich, loving book. And man, I acquiesce in that. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, just going, is, is this really true? Is there a gospel that saves a sinner like me? And I would open my Bible and read these great promises, simple promises to be received by faith. So it's to affect our hearts. And then third, confess and walk in the word. Let the Bible fill your lips and your life as it flows out of you, as you are going out and as you are coming in, keep this word with you. The people of God are a confessional people. We can and are to articulate what we believe and to share that faith with others. The word of God is capable of summary. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Believe in your hearts, yes, but also confess with your mouths, says Paul. 
So there's this visibility to the faith of the church. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I'll also confess him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the big fight of the ages is between Satan and the Son of God. So live out the word in your life. Live out the word in your own private life with the Lord. Live out the word in your home, in your relationships. Live out the word in your work, in your labors, whatever that labor may be. Let the word guide your play, your entertainments. Let your word guide, the word guide you and your view of the world around you, culture, art, literature, economics, and yes, even politics are impinged by this. Let your all be biblical, to be conformed to your living God, to be conformed to the resurrected Savior, is to be conformed to the word of God. There's a striking parallel in two of the epistles of Paul, where in the, in the one epistle he says, may you be filled with, the, filled with Christ, and the other says, be filled with the word of Christ. You can't have one without the other. So be a Bible man or a Bible woman. Be a Bible boy or a Bible girl. And so you will be, you yourself, a weapon, a sword to the world around you to bring life to them where they are perishing in their sins. Charles Hodge wrote, All the church's triumphs over sin and error have been affected by the word of God. So long as she uses this, the Bible, and relies on it alone, she goes on conquering. But when anything else, be it reason, science, tradition, or the commandments of men, is allowed to take its place or to share its office, then the church or the Christian is at the mercy of the enemy. Don't let these other areas, reason, science, tradition, commandments of men, come in and take away from the word. Great statement, yeah? Isn't that beautiful? Let's put it on this big, huge, white space up here, shall we? The same author would also say, if science should succeed in demonstrating what the earth, that the earth is millions of years old, then we will, with the utmost alacrity, believe that the days of creation were periods of indefinite duration. Just absolutely contradicted what he just said. If science tells us this, then we're going to pitch what the, what the exposition of Genesis 1 says. Just remarkable. We're all creatures of our age. And perhaps it's not, it's not um, surprising then that just a mere 50 years after the death of this great man, the Northern Presbyterian Church was liberal, letting these other things come in and to take the office of the word of God. The Bible and the Bible alone is our sword. It is both authoritative in all that it speaks, and it sufficiently speaks to all things. And probably that is the great debate in evangelicalism today, is, is the Bible sufficient? Don't we have to add these other things? May we be going forth in the battle with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving these pieces of uh, the armor to us to be used for um, your kingdom and to march, Lord, as your good soldiers. Fill us, Lord, with faith, faith in the Bible, trust in the Holy Scriptures. Make us lovers of your truth and help us, Lord, to build our lives according to the word. Help us, Lord, to be a people willing to change, willing to uh, turn uh, to wherever the Bible leads and be willing to be humbled, even if they are, we are held by great traditions of the past. Lord, may you lead and direct our footsteps into what you deem what is right and good. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you for giving us what is good and right and holy. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God that, that washes us and cleanses us and prepares us for glory. Continue to speak to us, Lord. Help us not to grieve your spirit, but always to have your word with us day by day. Bless us now, Lord, as we come uh, to the visible word, to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And may you minister to each of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.